Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see everybody here, and and certainly what a what a, a privilege and a blessing it is to be able to preach on graduation Sunday. Being the youth pastor, I've um, be coming up on five years uh, this summer that Leanne and I have uh, been blessed to be at this church. And so we, uh, when I first came, Johanna, Alyssa, and Kristen, they were just in junior high, and there you see some of those pictures, and they look pretty young, and now. Uh, your adults moving on. It's nice to see that our college group will have um, a little job security for me next year. <laughs> so that'll be nice. We look forward to meeting with you. But it, it, it's a privilege uh, to hear about the way that God has worked through uh, these students in the same way that He's worked through many of your lives and my life included. Just uh, that, that He works through us in ways that we, we can't understand. And oftentimes we don't know yet until we, we stop and look back at His faithfulness. Oftentimes in the, in the heat of the moment, through trials or uncertainty, um, we often ask the Lord, Lord, what are you doing? I don't understand. But um, as you get past it and as you grow and mature, and, and life works out. You look back and you see how God um, works His ways and His will and grows us into uh, His likeness. And so it, it's great to, to hear and the testimony of how God has, has worked through these students. Well, as Joe uh, mentioned, we will be continuing our study through the book of Colossians as uh, Joe graciously allows me to, to preach from time to time. We've been going through this, this great book. And today, uh, especially for the graduates, especially for parents of students, but uh, certainly for everyone, um, we're going to study and examine a topic that is the most important topic that you'll ever hear. Now, I'm not saying that this will be the greatest sermon that you'll ever hear, but the topic itself um, is, is the most important. If you can have a grasp on this topic that we'll, under, that we'll examine this morning, and not only grasp it, but understand the ramifications of what it means, um, then your life will never be the same. And, and I do want also uh, the graduates to consider this carefully too, especially um, as you head off to college in that environment that certainly uh, Johanna mentioned. And our topic this morning is Christ. The identity of Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? It seems like, it, especially in our American culture um, today, that there's a lot of confusion on exactly who Jesus is, isn't there? I mean, I don't think it's uh, too far-fetched to say that if you were going to randomly look up ten numbers in the phone book and give them a call and say, hey, I'm just doing a quick survey, can you tell me who Jesus is? Well, I don't think it's too, too much of a stretch that you get eight different answers. Yeah, I mean, certainly some of them will overlap, and I'm sure that many of those people might be able to tell you uh, what other people believe about Jesus. But it seems uh, that, that there's this confusion on who Jesus is and, and why it's important to know Him. And this is especially true with our young culture. I think they're confused about who Jesus is and, and more especially why He has any relevance in their life at all. If you talk to people, you go to college campuses or talk to people on the streets or maybe co-workers, they'll be able to tell you all sorts of opinions about Jesus. Oh, yes, uh, Jesus, he was a wise teacher that lived uh, many years ago. Oh, some will even say he was a prophet. 
Some will say that uh, he was a good man who did many good things, but was largely misunderstood by his culture and ours today. Some people will say, well, we don't really know a whole lot about uh, who Jesus is because um, the Bible writers embellished a lot of things about him to get their agenda across, and so we don't really know uh, quite who he is. And even you'll talk to some people, although there are few, that say, well, you know what, I don't even think Jesus existed. It's all folklore from thousands of years ago. And sadly, a uh, similar is true among evangelical Christians. And not to the same extremity, but there's, there's this confusion on the importance of knowing Jesus and why he is relevant. In his book, The Jesus You Can't Ignore, John MacArthur writes this. Until the past few years, no Christian who claimed to believe the Bible would have entertained the slightest doubt about the importance of the right view of God. But these days, it seems the visible church is dominated by people who simply are not interested in making any careful distinctions between fact and falsehood, sound doctrine and heresy, biblical truth, and mere human opinion. Even some of the leading voices among evangelicals seem intent on downplaying the value of objective truth. It's all up in the air. Well, Jesus, he kind of means this to me, and there are these certain truths, but what does he mean to you? And I think we see this, right? I mean, you drive around, I don't know if you've seen this, but sometimes you see um, bumper stickers or on the side of uh, buses, and there's this thing that says, Jesus is, and there's a blank. I don't know if you've seen those, but it's like you can like fill in your own answer. Well, if you go to the website there... <clears throat> um, there's a, they have all these different, like a, it's almost like a, a mosaic. There's all these different answers that you can put in the blanks. And, and underneath it, it says this. What goes in the blank? Everyone has an opinion of who Jesus is. That's why this website exists, as a platform for people to express who Jesus is to them. Now, admittedly, this, that website is put out by the city church, and it's supposed to be a, a semi-evangelistic you know, website, and I'm not condemning or endorsing it. I'm just saying it goes to show that there's a lot of confusion of who Jesus is, as if he's shrouded in mystery, as if one person's opinion is as good as the next. Is that true? Well, the fact of the matter is, this, this topic, this, this issue, it's nothing new. The same thing was happening when Jesus, in fact, was on the earth, when he was there, when they could just come up and ask him, Who are you? What are you about? And yet there was this confusion even while he was there. At what point in his ministry, Jesus had just fed 4,000 people from some fish and a few loaves, and he had just healed a blind man. In other words, pretty much a typical week in the life of the Lord. And as, he and, and, and as he and his disciples were walking towards uh, the villages of Caesarea Philippi, he was walking with them and they would talk as they do. And then from his mouth came, he, he asked them a question. He said to them, Who do people say that I am? I can imagine them talking amongst themselves, thinking about it. And they replied, Well, Lord, some say that you're John the Baptist. Back from the dead. Some people say that you're Elijah. Others say that, that you're one of the prophets. You know what? Your co-workers, they're not sure who Jesus is. Your neighbor, they, they think they might know who Jesus is because they uh, learned a little bit about him in Sunday school when they were young, but that was many years ago. Or they recently watched the latest documentary on the History Channel that told them all about who Jesus is. Your college professors, 
Well, they're not exactly sure who he is, but they're pretty certain on who he is not. Are you going to believe them? Do you know who he is? Who is Jesus Christ? Because following their answer, Jesus has a follow-up question to them. And it's the most important question that you'll have to answer in your life. Some say, you're John the Baptist, Lord. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Well, in our passage this morning, Paul gives what is arguably uh, one of the most glorious and clear descriptions of who Jesus Christ is. And I want you, as we're examining it, to consider the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Because in the end, um, who other people say He is, um, who your parents, who your friends, who your children say He is, ultimately, you don't have to give an account for them. But you have to stand before God and answer that question. And how you answer it will have ramifications. Not just really in this life, because there are ramifications on how you answer it in this life, but for eternity in the life to come. And so it's important that you get it right. If you remember, um, just as a a bit of a context, Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison uh, to a group of believers in Colossae, who mainly, for the most part, he had never met. Uh, he had had interaction with their pastor, Epaphras, and so he, Epaphras had come to visit Paul in Rome in prison, and he kind of gave them the, the, the update on what was going on in the church and the things they were struggling with and the things that, uh, that they were doing well. And so Paul pens this letter to them, first to express gratitude for their faith and giving praise to God for all the works that he was doing through them. And then he continued on to give them insight into Christian living. And he, uh, last time we looked, he, he talked about how uh, Christians are supposed to live and what does a godly lifestyle look like. He reminded them that they had been delivered from the domain of darkness and had been qualified to receive an inheritance in heaven amongst the saints and that they had been transferred into the glorious kingdom of the Son of God. And as he thinks about this glorious kingdom of the Son of God, his mind goes, and as he's thinking about the Son, it causes him to list a description of who is this Son? Who is this Son who ransomed us and saved us? Because one of the issues the church was having, and we'll look at this a little bit more next time, was that uh, some false teaching had crept in in the church, and there was even confusion then on exactly who Jesus was. And so Paul writes in this passage so that there's no mistake about it, so that it's clear, that they have a gauge so that they know who is Jesus. Well, let's look to see what God's Word says. And we have that, that standard with us today as well. Because I think most of you here, hopefully, would be able to say, well, who, you know, be able to say something about Jesus. Most of you would be able to say, well, yeah, Jesus, if, if I were to ask you on the street who Jesus is or, you know, just after the service. Most of you say, well, He's the Son of God. He, he died on the cross for my sins. But does your description stop there? Would you be hard-pressed if, if somebody says, well, okay, I, I've heard that before, but what does that mean? Like, who is He? Would you be able to describe Him? Well, I think this is one of the main reasons that Paul is writing. And I want you to consider this um, as, as we study on who Jesus is. 
There's two important reasons. The first is that the more you know Christ, the more you know who He is, the more you can appreciate Him and worship Him. Because it's true in life, isn't it? The more you have and understand the quality of something, the more you appreciate it. Right? And, and that goes with all sorts of things. Gifts, phones, computers. The more you, you see their intricacies and, and what they can do, the more you appreciate them. The more you'll be able to worship and adore. The second is this. The more you know about Christ and who He is, the more easily you'll be able to recognize when somebody presents you with a false version of Him. Or His teachings. Or what He said. About a month ago, um, I was sitting in a coffee shop. I was with a, a church member. and We were, were talking about spiritual things as we usually do. Um, and we're sitting there, and, and in, in this coffee shop in Kirkland, they're doing some construction out front. And this kind of rugged construction worker guy comes in, and he goes, Does anybody own this uh, Miata out front? We're about to do some uh, kind of, we're about to kick up a bunch of dust, and I noticed that the, the windows were down, and I didn't want the inside to get dirty. It was kind of a nice gesture. And so everyone's kind of sitting around and then looking, and he's like, Anybody, this blue Miata out front? We're kind of looking, and the, the gentleman to the table next to me kind of leans out the window and kind of looks surprised, like, oh, that's, that's mine, thank you, I'll go take care of it. And so he stood up, and he, and he walked out together, then the two of them walked out together, and he walked out the front to his car, and he proceeded to roll up the windows of his blue Miata-looking BMW Z4 Roadster. <laughs> and if you don't know a lot about cars, there's a vast difference between a Miata and a BMW, but certain models, I suppose, can look the same. You know, we were laughing when we came back in. Like, hey, nice Miata, you know. <laughs> he, he, was, he was kind about it. But you see, for those who haven't studied or are even necessarily paying close attention, I'll, I'll give the construction worker the benefit of the doubt. He just walked by and saw a convertible and kind of looked like a Miata. But the thing is, when it comes to Christ, it's not about a car, Okay. It's about your eternal soul and the soul and future and lives of others. And so you need to know the difference between the truth and a counterfeit. The one that's of worth much value and the, worth, and the thing that is worth ultimately nothing at all. Because you know what? The world is presenting us with all sorts of different models. And you need to be able to recognize the true, the only true one. And this is the reason why I think that Paul gives this description as we'll read. So that the people, the church in Colossae, and now in God's divine providence as we have His word today, that we will know the exact portrait of who Christ is, what He represents. And this is not biographical matter. This is not just telling us a history lesson. It's telling us about who He is. His character, His person. And understanding this doesn't just influence your understanding of Him or how to share the gospel with others, it influences um, your understanding of life, how you know right from wrong. It, it, it influences our understanding of, uh, of marriage and the family and relationships and our worldview. Understanding our outlook of the future and, and looking back and understanding why things happened in the past. It all is influenced on who Christ is. So Paul describes Christ... We'll begin in, in uh, Colossians 1, verse 15. Paul writes, after just saying that, uh, that we've been transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness, uh, the forgiveness of sins, verse 14, verse 15, he begins, He, being Christ, 
is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Lord, as we look at this glorious description of Your Son, we pray that that His identity would become crystal clear, both in our hearts and our minds, Lord, that as we get to know You, we might worship You in spirit and in truth, Lord, and that our lives would reflect the truth that we, we know. Bless our time together as we study Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So Paul... He gives us, gives us description of Christ and is certainly not exhaustive. And here, um, there's 13 descriptions of who uh, Jesus is. And, and certainly we're not going to get through all of them today. This morning we'll, we're going to focus on the first two. But bit by bit as we, as we go through, it, it, it's important I think to, to, to take a step back and look at what these are saying about Christ. And not only so you know Him, but what does that mean in your everyday life? You know, so, you know, what does it mean, okay, as we'll look at this morning, what does it mean that Christ is the image of the invisible God? And what does that mean to me? Firstborn over all creation, what? Well, that's what we'll look at this morning and in the time to come. Paul had, um, I'm sure, been eager to visit this church and... And he knew he wouldn't be able to for a time. And so I feel as if he was writing to them, what, what, what are the things that they need to most know so that when I get there, they'll, they'll be the least damage control? That if, if they can know this, then they'll be on their way to maturing as Christians. So this morning, as we, as we look to the text, we're going to see two descriptive truths about Christ so that you will properly know Him and worship Him. Two descriptive truths about Christ so that you will properly know and worship Him. The first one is this. He is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God. The Greek word here uh, for image is uh, ikon, and it's where we get our English word icon from. And it means uh, just to be a copy of something or, or a manifestation of something. Oftentimes, um, in the ancient world, it was described, um, it, was, it was used to describe, say, a statue or a golden coin with, a, with the likeness of the emperor's face on it. Uh, that was, uh, you know, an image or an icon. But it, it wasn't just limited to physical appearance. It also also uh, could describe a likeness of character or nature. And I think we even use uh, that you know, in our vernacular too. If you say someone is, say, a, a sports icon or a, a music icon, you're not saying that they look like they're you know, respectable sport, um, but rather that their image kind of represents the, the things that they embody, that, that their character, their lifestyle is kind of, the, say, the image of the company or the face of the company, we might say. 
So it, it, it also shows that it's not just a, a physical thing, but it's a character in nature. And I, I think a clearer example is found in Genesis 1, where uh, God says that you and I, mankind, are made in the image of God. Well, that, that can't certainly mean the physical image. I mean, look at us all. We all look different. And God doesn't have a, a body of flesh and, and blood like us. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we as people uh, are created with certain attributes that mirror our divine creator. Right? Attributes say like rationality, uh, the ability to choose and have a will, the ability to love, the ability to forgive, uh, to have dominion and authority over things. All those kind of things reflect our divine creator. Well, Jesus was a man just like us, so what separates then Jesus' image from, say, our image, since we are made uh, in the image of God? Well, in the book, uh, Putting Jesus in His Place, the authors help explain this for us. They write, The application of the term image makes it clear that Paul is speaking of Christ's likeness to the Father. Whereas God created and made human beings in His image, Jesus Christ, God's beloved Son, is His image. In the Incarnation, Jesus shows us perfectly what the invisible God is really like. You see, Jesus not only has some divine attributes, in in a sense like we do, but He has them all perfectly. He is not lacking in any of them like you and I are. And to help kind of see this explained further, if you can, flip with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. In Hebrews, the the, the author is is speaking along a similar vein as Paul is in, in Colossians. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, he writes this. He, speaking of Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, the writer says, just to give it, it's not just a physical thing, but it's a nature, it's a characteristic. He is the exact imprint of the Heavenly Father. He's exactly like God. Because He is God. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes in a different time that, that Jesus is the very form of God. During His ministry on earth, uh, Jesus poured His life into those disciples. His disciples. He had many of them, but especially the twelve. And they saw who He was. They saw that who, what He did. They, they, they saw the kind of character He was. They saw His power. I mean, you you remember that one time where they're all in the the, the Sea of Galilee and the storm is raging and they're like, Lord, we're perishing. And he stands up and rebukes the wind and they're all amazed. Like, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They saw all of that day after day. But more especially, or more importantly, I should say, they heard the truth which he spoke. They heard the truths of God coming from him. And so towards the end of his ministry, this truth which he spoke, he made it clear to them. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. There's one way, and I am it. And then his disciple, Philip, thinking, okay, no one goes to the Father but 
through the Lord. Okay, well, Lord, we want that, but can you show us the Father then? If you just show us the Father, then that's enough for us. We'll get it and we'll understand. And Jesus turns to him and he says, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. That which was invisible before was made visible through Jesus Christ. And maybe some of you are here like Philip. Maybe you've been with God for a long time. And you've been to Sunday school and you've heard all about God, but you still don't know Him. Or at least maybe know Him as you should. He's the perfect image of the Father. To know Him is to know God. The invisible became visible and dwelt among us and giving humans an understanding of God that they had never known before. And it's interesting, actually. Uh, I was fascinated with the use of this term image because one thing we know, especially if Paul is writing this, one thing we know about Jewish culture is that images of God were strictly forbidden, right? The second commandment, you shall not make a graven image or worship it. And the reason being, for, for many reasons, but the, the main one is because the, the, the beauty, the radiance, the glory, the awesomeness of God cannot be contained in a statue or a, a gold image. I mean, in a sense, it's an insult to God. Here, God, this is you. It's like, what? I hold the universe in the, in, in the palm of my hand and I'm in the likeness of something made of wood? They were strictly forbidden to make any sort of images and especially to worship because all of them would fail to represent the true God. And yet here now we have Jesus Christ, who is the image of God. And we are to worship that. The only, the only thing that could, could represent God as a proper image is if it was God Himself that came. That we might behold Him and worship Him. And that's what you are to do with Christ. There's one thing we know for sure. God will not give His glory to another. And he's given it to Jesus Christ because he is God, the image of the invisible God. And so what does this mean in your life? What does this mean to you? Well, I think there's many applications, but I think it especially, it's especially relevant, relevant concerning the, the images of God which you worship. Because the thing is, in our culture today, many people worship an image of God that is made in their own image, don't they? A God who they're comfortable with, that suits their worldview and their needs. Oh, my God is a God of love. He, he will accept anybody. He accepts homosexuals. He accepts whoever, as long as they're good people. My God is big enough to be a God of all religions. As long as uh, you're good enough and have enough faith, all roads lead to God. My, my God won't judge me for my sin. He knows I've done the very best that I've could with what I've had. My God wouldn't create a hell. That's a terrifying place. What good God would create that? You know what? It's true. Your God wouldn't. But the problem is, your God doesn't exist. Your God doesn't exist. There's only one and true living God. And His image is Christ. To find meaning, to understand how life 
works, to, to know how to speak, to live, to understand the purpose and meaning of all of life is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Examine Him. If you want to find meaning and understanding, examine Him. Anything that differs from the, the image that, that Christ has portrayed in the Gospels, anything that differs that is a distortion of God. It's a false idol. It's not real. And the problem is that, you know what? And you understand this. You in life are going to be presented with many idols, aren't you? Many other things claiming to be the image of God. Images that call for you to worship them and to follow after them and to conform yourself into their image. Whose image are you conforming yourself to? If you're a Christian, the Spirit's working inside us. And that's why we have to put off our old image, which is fallen and marred by sin, and conform ourselves to the image of Christ so that we might be like God. Mind yourself on on whose image you are creating yourself. Because there's many out there who are calling to be worshipped. Do not follow them. Well, Paul continues... And he says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Verse 15. And then he says, He is the firstborn of all creation. First Paul describes Christ's relationship to the Father. And now he kind of moves and describes what his relationship is to you and I in all creation. And he says he's the firstborn of all creation. And, and this, kind of, this term has caused a lot of confusion for a lot of people. And maybe, maybe you too. Maybe you're reading this in your quiet times. Maybe you're at a Bible study or something like that. And you come across this like firstborn of all creation. What does this mean? Like It sounds like Christ is, is being born and he's a part of creation. But if Christ is God, that can't be right. So what does this mean? Well, this confusion is not new. Even in the 4th century, there was a preacher named Arius, and he, and he preached that, that uh, Christ, in fact, was a created being, but that he was the greatest of all created beings. And, and the teaching was condemned by the early church, but it continues to, to continue now, or, you know, it, it exists now. Mormons believe that, that, that Jesus was uh, a literal creation. You know, he, he was the result of a, a literal a relationship between God and, and Mary. And, and more specifically, Jehovah Witnesses, um, they say that, that Jesus was an angel, the best angel. In fact, they say the archangel Michael in the Old Testament is actually Jesus and that he was, um, he was created. And they, they use this very verse to promote this. So when they come to you and they use this verse, you say, you see, the Bible says that Jesus was created. He's the firstborn of all creation. How are you going to answer? Well, the answer lies in our understanding of the title firstborn. Right? And we don't use this term a lot because of our, you know, in our culture, the, the idea of birthright and all that kind of thing is not, as, not the same as the ancient Near East. Um, but the term itself is used 130 times uh, in Scripture. And most of the time it's referring to somebody who's just the firstborn, mainly the firstborn son. Because they had the, the, the inheritance right. They had uh, more inheritance and more privilege than the others. But it's not limited to that. Even in, in the Hebrew and Greek, it also it conveys a sense of, we would say, preeminence. But what that means is a place of special honor and privilege and authority. You see, the, the idea of being the firstborn, it, it, it had so much special blessing with it, that over time it just came to represent not necessarily the firstborn, but just somebody who had privilege and authority and, and, and rank above others. And I think it's good if we, if we see a couple of illustrations of this. So if you can, um, flip with me to Genesis chapter 48. At this point in time, 
um, Jacob is, a, is about to pass away and he's, and he's giving blessings to his family. And in verse, uh, chapter 48, verse 14, we read an account. In verse 14, and Israel, that's, that's Jacob, has stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Okay, so you have that understanding. Now flip with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, we have an account of, of, of God's coming faithfulness and restoration of Israel one day, and that although they're being judged because of their sin, they have a future hope. Jeremiah 31, and we'll read in verse 9. It says this, With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. But wait a minute. We just read in Genesis that Manasseh was the firstborn. It said it, first it said Ephraim is the younger, then it said for Manasseh is the firstborn. And now we have here in Jeremiah, Ephraim being the firstborn. Is this scripture contradicting itself? No. It's just demonstrating to us that the firstborn does not necessarily have anything to do with being born or created. It can be just a title of somebody who has a special privilege or rank or honor above others. In fact, in Psalm 89, David is called the firstborn. And we know he wasn't the firstborn. In fact, he was the youngest of his brothers. It says that he'll be the highest kings of the earth. Not only was he not the first king of Israel, but he wasn't even the first king of the the earth, certainly. And so it just goes to show that this this term does not mean necessarily that a literal creation or birth. It just means a place of special rank and privilege. And Paul was using it in a way that the early church would understand. Oh, Christ has special rank, privilege, and authority over everything in creation. And and some versions say uh, firstborn of creation. I think the NIV and New King James actually translate it better when they say firstborn over all creation. Jesus existed before creation, and he has special rank and privilege and authority over creation. This very verse, which the this very verse, which say Jehovah Witnesses would say, uh, see Jesus was born. It's actually contradicting their very beliefs. No, no, he actually is better than all of creation. He has higher rank. So, what does this mean? Say, so, well, I, I don't interact with the term firstborn a lot. Although now it will come in handy if I ever hear Jehovah Witness tell me. But what does this mean in my life? Well, my question to you is this. Are you living as if you are the firstborn over all creation? As if you have preeminence over the works of God, and in a sense the, the world revolves around you? And I know that might be, sound drastic. You might say, no, no, James, not over creation. Maybe firstborn over, like, Bellevue. East side, maybe. <laughs> we laugh, but we know it's not true. But knowing and the way you live are not always the same thing, are they? Your walk with Christ 
oftentimes can just be one of the many things that you do, one of the, this, an equal you know, slice of the pie of your life, so to speak. And you treat it equally to the many other things, as if it's just important, as if your relationship with Christ and Christ is just as important to you as your job or your family or grades or sports or whatever it might be, relationships. Instead of being the preeminent one, the one is, that is most worthy. And when trials come and, under, and, and lack of understanding comes, you get angry with God and upset with Him as if you are the firstborn and, man, Lord, why, why is this happening to me? Instead of looking at it, well, this might be happening to me, but I know that Christ is the firstborn over all creation, so this must be working somehow, some way for His glory. And I don't understand, but God, show me. Because the thing is, although Christ is firstborn over all creation, you know He loves you. He's so good to you. He's given us all more blessings than we certainly deserve or could even hope for. But the overarching purpose for our lives and what happens in them is to glorify the one who is worthy of praise. All of human history, past, present, and future, is centered around Jesus Christ. But the wonderful thing is, is that when you live for Him, when you make Him the firstborn, since He is that, you reap the benefits. Your life becomes more enriched. You live for His glory, you find purpose and blessing and joy in life. Because you know it's not about you, it's about Him. But knowing Him brings blessings beyond comprehension. As I close, I... I especially turn towards the graduates and say, please, please listen. The aspect of your faith which is going to be most violently attacked is Christ's position in your life. The concept that Christ has authority and that you should honor Him above all things, that He's the only way to God and that He deserves your absolute worship is repulsive to the world and they won't stand for it. And they fight against it. And they will fight against you if you stand by it. And they will hate you if you stand by it. And Jesus made it clear. The world hates me, and if it hates me, it's going to hate you. With the implication being that you're standing up for Him. You see it all the time, don't we? In media, and politics, they hate Jesus Christ. They don't make Him the preeminent one. He's not the image of the invisible God. Who do you say that I am? He asks. What's your answer? And will your answer be the same a year from now? Five years from now? Many have gone off a different path. And I encourage you to stand strong. Worship God. Worship Jesus Christ. And make Him the preeminent one in your life. And make your life reflect that through your faith. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Lord, as we just begin to scratch the surface of your greatness, Lord, of of, of the worthiness of your praise, of who you are, Lord, that, that we might know you and be known by you and reflect your truth in our life, that we would worship you and you alone, that we would place you above all things, knowing, Father, that you have blessed us and loved us and forgiven us of our sin and given us a a heavenly inheritance by which we can spend eternity with you. Lord, we 
We just ask, Lord, if there's, if there's people here who do not know You, that You would make Yourself known to them and they would worship You and come to know the true and only living God. Bless our time together. Bless the graduates as they go forth, Lord. Keep them, encourage them, Father, and, and, and glorify Yourself through them, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.